0: Uh, all of the bugs and all of the wonderful wildlife in our uh, in our north, and uh, I'm glad to be back from a great uh, canoe trip last weekend. And uh, those that those that join me can can attest to God's goodness, His uh, the beauty of His creation, and uh, the great uh, fellowship that we enjoyed. Uh, I didn't see the movie myself, but uh, back in uh, 2013, Meryl Streep uh, starred in a movie called. August Osage County and by all accounts it was uh, quite a a dark tale Uh, she plays a harsh matriarch in this wildly dysfunctional family and there was problem after problem after problem Uh, JP Moreland describes it like this the film unrelentingly shows a family ripping itself apart scene after scene is void of warmth, humor, or hope. And the film fittingly ends with Streep uh, weeping in the arms of the housekeeper as each of her daughters has abandoned her. Dark movie. Tough, tough to watch. Despite all of that darkness and gloom, however, as a credits roll, they have this final scene with Julia Roberts in a... Uh, Uh, a meadow scene, and she's watching as the horses are uh, dancing and playing. And in the background, uh, there's an upbeat song with the lyrics, things are always better when we're all together. And and people watched this movie and saw this ending and said, "Ah, I'm not sure what was going on there at the end. It, it, It just seemed like there was just despair and darkness and hopelessness. And then right when you get to the, the, the credits, they, they put this happy, upbeat, warm-sounding uh, ending onto it. And so he was asked about it. Uh, the, uh, uh, the man who, who had adapted the play, John Wells, uh, asked, why'd you do it? What was going on there? What was in your mind? And he admitted that he was pressured into it. What had happened, they'd shown the movie to test audiences, and when it came to the ending, they were like, we can't take it, this is, this is too depressing, this is too dark, there's got to be something to lift our spirits as we leave the movie theater, and so uh, there's nothing really in the story to, to give you that hope. So he was forced to add on a little happy ending, even if it came as the credits were rolling, even if it was totally disjointed, from the rest of the story. I fear that many people do to their lives what John Wells did to that movie. They take a life that is otherwise uh, void of uh, true confidence and hope and uh, a sense of certainty with regard to to God, to to what's to come, and yet when they come to the end, for lack of a better alternative and not wanting it to end any other way, they tack, tack on a happy ending. That because it doesn't flow naturally out of the story of their life, it seems disjointed, feels forced, artificial. A- and we, as an audience, we, we want this. We ask for it. We invite that forced happy ending we all gather and say, oh, he's in a better place now. And yet often we say those things when the reality was uh, it just feels disconnected from the person's life. There, there wasn't that, that hope radiating from their life. There, and so those words of, uh, of consolation feel disconnected and disjointed from that life. It feels like we've Forced a happy ending. That we've tacked on something that feels artificial and so it rings hollow. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's a harsh thing for me to say, but I, I say it in love because I believe that the God of the Bible truly desires that happy ending for all of us as much as we want it. But He wants a real happy ending, He wants something that is a real and certain hope not something that is artificial and forced and disconnected from a life that is otherwise missing and lacking that hope. If you've been around church for a while, you probably have a vague sense of the hope that the Bible proclaims, but often people are fuzzy on the details. Uh, and maybe, uh, maybe you have, have some of those details in mind, but... Your hope needs stirring up, and uh, that's what I believe this morning's passage does. It it dives us into the heart of uh, the Christian's hope in the midst of grief, in the midst of uh, facing the reality of death, and yet it does so with with some some details, some specifics, but with a just a grand picture of. Uh, the future that God has planned for those who trust him. If you have your Bibles, we've been working all through the summer through a, uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, we'll be uh, continuing there this morning on chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, in your pew Bibles in front of you, it is on page 928, and I'm going to read from verse 13 all the way down to verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. This is the word of God. Now, this passage starts by reminding us that there is real hope in a Christian's grief. It's not a, it's not a hope that, that uh, extinguishes grief or denies grief, but it is a real hope uh, nonetheless that, that can transform our grief, that can minister in the midst of that grief. In verse 13, Paul starts a section by telling them he doesn't want them to be uninformed. And and, and this is the first time in the letter that, that this has happened. Up until now, we've seen again and again, he's been referring back to things. He says, you know this, I've told you this. But when he gets to this section, it seems that they haven't quite got it. They, they, they're missing information. Possibly, like many of you, they've heard some information about this hope that is to come, this hope that they can lay, lay hold of in the face of death. And although they've heard some things, they, they've, they're fuzzy on the details. Uh, likely they've, they've heard some information, but often until you're f- confronted with the reality of, of the circumstances, you don't really listen. You don't really take in what it is that you're being told. And, and so this is likely the, the case here. Timothy has come back uh, from Thessalonica and he's reporting to paul and and he's brought back a, a report that the church was confused and overwhelmed by the death of some of the Christians uh, in their fellowship. And they'd probably heard some teaching about the believers' hope, but they were still unclear about things and and that might be the case for some of you this morning there there may be some of you who are who just haven't haven't heard the details about what this hope is that we have. It, you have a vague sense, but some of the, uh, some of the things aren't, aren't clear. For others of you, you have that hope. You, you kind of know the details, but that hope needs to be stirred up. It, it needs to be encouraged. It needs to be uh, brought to the center. This section will end in verse 18 with the words, therefore encourage one another with these words. And it's a reminder that this is not a message to hear and say, oh, I understand that now. It is a message to be shared. This is something that we talk with one another about, that we lift one another about, because God will put people in our lives who are grieving in need of hope and the reminder of this passage and in verse 18 in particular, that we are to take these words and use them to lift others up and to encourage them in this great hope that we have. And that's important because if uh, Simon Critchley's critique is at all true of, of any of us, we need to work harder at both laying hold of and stirring up this hope amongst ourselves. Critchley uh, he's an atheist, he's a philosopher, uh, but he writes on uh, what is happening in this world and how he uh, assesses different uh, movements. And he, he says that many Christians talk of their hope after, uh, hope of life after death, but they're, in reality, often their real hope is just in medicine, drugs, and technology to extend life. Listen to what he says. He says that in in comparison to Paul, Augustine, and Luther, many Christians today are actually leading desperate atheist lives bounded by a desire for longevity and a terror of death. (laughs) That's not a great assessment. And I'm sure it's not true of all of us, but I I still think we need to ask the question, is is that true of you? Is that true of me? Do you claim to believe in heaven but live as if this world is really your only hope. Desperately clinging to the hope of this life, really not giving much thought to the hope of the next life, nor giving much thought to the faith in Jesus Christ that alone is our uh, confidence for the life to come. Now, I said that in the church in Thessalonica, the believers had become disturbed and some of the, about some of the church, uh, members in the church who had died. In verse 13, Paul says to them, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now he says those who are asleep, um, and this was just a common way both in Greek and Hebrew in the first century to refer to people who had died. Sometimes Paul will talk about people who had died. Sometimes he talks about them as having fallen asleep. It was just a, a euphemistic way of referring to the dead. Sometimes, however, pe- people and Christians in particular will misunderstand uh, Paul's uh, encouragement here not to grieve like those who have no hope. And they take that and they say, maybe what Paul's saying here is I shouldn't grieve at all. Maybe what it's saying is if I have hope in Jesus, then any expression of, of pain and, and grief and mourning is wrong. I got to keep a stiff upper, upper lip. And that's not the message here. He's warning about a particular kind of grief, a hopeless grief, a, a, a grief that is not marked and, and informed by the great hope that we have in Christ. I, I say that because elsewhere the Bible would, will describe death as an enemy. Uh, even Jesus wept uncontrollably at the grave of his good friend Lazarus. In the Bible, godly people don't just keep a stiff upper lip; they feel the pain, they grieve the loss. Uh, in Acts uh, chapter eight, verse two, it says, "Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him." It, it tells us they were devout men, and in, in, in case we had thought, "Oh, that great lamentation that they were making, that that." The the mourning that they were doing, that's just because they didn't have any hope. No, they had clear hope in Jesus Christ. They knew where Stephen was going, but there's still a pain in separation. There's a pain because death is, in one sense, unnatural. It was brought into this world through our sin, and we still grieve the, the presence of it. We long for that day when death will be no more. Now, when Paul seeks to teach the Thessalonians in order that they might not grieve as as others who have no hope, he was speaking to people in a culture who were, for the most part, devoid of hope. Uh, Greek culture in the first century was hopeless when it concerned death. Uh, There's an ancient Greek poet, Theocritus, who uh, expressed how your average Greco-Roman would have seen the grave. He said hopes are for the living, the dead have no hope. And so he's, he's in a culture where the, the average person has no hope about life after death. And he has come and he's established a church there just a short period of time. He's proclaimed to them, no, there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope for eternal life if you put your faith in him alone. And yet, it just was such a disconnect from everything that they'd ever heard or experienced that it was hard for them to lay hold of. Today isn't much different. Today, people will either walk without hope or they will cling to false hope. Uh, when I think of this, I think of uh, Larry King. Uh, Larry King is uh, uh, he, he was an interviewer for years, a reporter. Um, And a New York Times article called him obsessed with death. Uh, He begins every day, apparently, reading the obituaries. He takes uh, growth hormones, uh, human growth hormones. Now, I think he's 85. uh, Still, He's taking human uh, growth hormones, four pills a day, in order to somehow extend his life. Then uh, he has uh, signed up and paid the... uh, Uh, the appropriate fees for cryogenic freezing of his body uh, upon his death, with the hopes that maybe somehow, someday, someone will come up with the medical breakthrough to somehow bring him back to life. The article says this, It's nuts, concedes King, but at least it gives him a shred of hope. Other people, he says, have no hope. He, he, he acknowledges that these are really far-fetched, really um, just a shred of possibility, but it's better than other people who have no hope. And, and so we, we need to pause here and ask, it, it, is your hope in the face of death more than Larry King's? Is it more than just the, the, the last ditch, last resort? It's, it's really a slim chance, but, but I'm kind of holding out better than nothing. Is that your faith? Is your hope real? Does it it stir confidence in how you live? Does does your hope stir stir a sense of joy and expectation, anticipation even in the face of death? Does your hope draw you nearer to Jesus? Does Does it affect how you live your life today? If not, maybe you're uninformed the way the Thessalonians were. Maybe the hope hasn't really hit home. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've understood parts of it. Maybe it's still a little little fuzzy. But even if the details are there, maybe you haven't really laid hold of it by faith. And maybe it needs stirring up because there is real hope in a Christian's grief. Uh, Personally, I don't have enough faith for human growth hormones for cryogenic freezing. I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, Larry King's got that on me. Uh, but I do have real hope in the face of death. And it comes from Jesus's resurrection. His resurrection gives me evidence, gives me a foundation of something real uh, that I can base my hope on. And Jesus's resurrection points to my own. What, what happened with Jesus when he died and then rose from the grave is a pattern and a foreshadowing of what will happen to all who trust in him, all who would claim to follow him. It, it, will, it, it will be a, 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 a great resurrection for all who, who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're following through the passage, it's not a coincidence that Paul starts with this... Uh, Dealing with a believer's hope in the face of death. And then right in verse 14, he goes in talking about Jesus' resurrection. Because our hope as believers, it is not God saying, well, just take a leap. You just have to believe. No, he is going to give you some clear reason to believe, uh, a clearly demonstrated uh, uh, evidence for uh, us to root our faith in. In verse 14, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's means of convincing you that there really is life after death and that he is the one who holds that power of life after death. It's intended to convince you. Jesus, uh, Jesus was raised from the, raised from the dead without human growth hormones, without cryogenic freezing. There wasn't any medical breakthrough. It wasn't some strange resuscitation. He was raised from the dead by the power of God. And that hope is held out to each one of us who put our faith in him. In 2 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He looked back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he said, God's going to do it again. What he did to Jesus, he will do with all who call on his name and we can have that as a certain hope. It's not just a hope of extending this painful life. It's not just a hope that we will get a little bit of, of a lift. It's not just just these, these vague hopes There is a hope of a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. We will be with the Lord forever. Now, many people would like to claim this as their hope. It seems like a good thing. We'd like to add this to our life, but a little bit like the way John Wells did to his movie. We want to tack this Christian hope onto an otherwise not very Christian life, right? Like who doesn't want to believe in heaven? Uh, it, it's, it, it astonishes me the number of people who will say, "Yeah, I believe in heaven," and you, you ask them about all of their other beliefs, and there's like, there's like nothing. And, and you're like, "Well, where? Like, if you're basically, you know, an atheist, where would you find room for heaven as as, as an atheist? Like, where would, where earth would that come from? We we want to tack it on to our lives, and yet this great hope comes." through faith in Christ alone. The resurrection of Jesus is also the only hope of eternal life that has been demonstrated and proven and given as evidence in history. When Jesus died, he was was left on a cross, right? He was left on a cross to die. And uh, in order to ensure that he was dead, the, the Roman guard took a spear and drove it through him. If there was any life left in him, surely a a Roman centurion who was experienced and familiar with death would be able to to identify that. But then he was taken down from the cross, put into a grave. But before he was put into a grave, wrapped in burial cloths and covered with 75 pounds of spices and ointments to anoint him for for the death. Anoint him for burial. Like, if, if the cross didn't do it, the spear would have, right? If the spear didn't do it, surely being wrapped up with 75 pounds of spices and burial cloths, like, that's going to finish him off. Then they post a guard outside the grave in order to make sure that nobody tampers with anything, that nobody's getting away with any kind of tricks. And despite all of that, on the third day He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. On on that third day, he appeared uh, to Mary, to other women. He ate with his disciples. He he appeared uh, to a crowd at one point of over 500 people at one time. He had continued to appear to the disciples for over 40 days. And then he was carried up in front of their watching eyes into heaven. The church was born because of the sheer number of eyewitnesses to this event. It's intended to convince you. It's intended to prove to you that he alone has power over the grave. The message of those early eyewitnesses is given for us by example in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. It says there, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, if even one of Jesus' many opponents could have stood up and said, I've seen the body, he's still there. Christianity would have died in the first century. There would have not been any church. And yet those witnesses did not stand. Those opponents did not oppose this message of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection fueled an unquenchable confidence in life after death. It says in verse 14, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' followers will rise just as Jesus did. will be given new bodies as he was. And those new bodies will be transformed bodies. There will be no more sickness, no more sin, no more disease, no more dying, no more tears. We have a great hope. Have you laid hold of it? Does that hope fuel the way that you live? Does it change you? I love how Billy Graham expressed his confidence. He passed away last year, but in an interview in Newsweek magazine, uh, he said this, I think about having a great deal. I think about the failures in my life in the past, but know they have been covered by the blood of Christ. And that gives me a great sense of confidence. I have a certainty about eternity that is a wonderful thing. And I thank God for giving me that certainty. I do not fear death. I may fear a little bit about the process, but not death itself, because I think the moment that my spirit leaves this body, I will be in the presence of the Lord. That's not just a happy ending tacked on to a hopeless life that that kind of hope flows out of a a life that has lived in a conscious laying hold of that hope, a a gripping of that hope with eyes on Jesus Christ and with a a devotion and delight in all that he is. And that's the hope that God wants for us. God wants us to walk in that hope, to enjoy that hope. Not just to try and force it at the end like, like yeah, everybody can, can have that. But to lay hold of it today that when that day comes, we can face it with the kind of confidence that Billy Graham gives for us here. Do you have that hope? Have you laid hold of it? Does it need stirring up? If you do have that hope, then this passage spells out some of the specifics there's an amazing picture of exactly what will take place. And it is a picture of us celebrating the return of our King. It's not just a reboot or an extension of this life's pain, but there will be celebration and wonder. We'll celebrate the return of our glorious King. Now, some of you have heard something about something called the rapture. And if you haven't heard of something called the rapture, then that's okay as well. Um, But, Maybe for many of you, what you've heard about the rapture comes mostly from movies and a wildly successful uh, set of books called uh, the Left Behind novels. I want to look this morning at what the Bible actually teaches about this thing called the rapture. Uh, First of all, we need to say uh, the word rapture never appears in the Bible. Our word rapture comes from a Latin word, raptura, that uh, translates a word uh, in Greek that appears in our translation this morning in verse 17 as caught up. It's like being yanked, okay? Interestingly, this word appears only once in the Bible in relation to the second coming. So if we are gonna learn anything about the rapture, we probably need to understand it from this passage. The first thing we learn about it in verse 16 is that it accompanies Jesus' return. And there are a series of phrases to describe what that return will be like. Verse 16 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Okay, how's that going to happen? With a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. So Jesus is returning, and as he returns, he cries out. And presumably, he can make... Quite a, quite a noise if he wants to. Then there is the uh, voice of an archangel. Now an archangel is kind of like the chief of the angels. So again, presumably, someone with this kind of power and authority, he can, he can make himself known. He's got some, some, some lungs. He's got some chops. Then if that noise wasn't enough, there is the piercing sound of a trumpet. Uh, Trumpets today are are, are still used to announce royalty. They're used in fanfare uh, at a time when we want to call to everyone's attention. This is a loud, public demonstration of uh, the return of a king. And and it's important that we mention that because many people, there's, there's popular teaching that says that this return and this Rapture that this passage is talking about will be secret. It'll be quiet. Um, nobody will know about it until after it's happened. But here it is a very loud and very public event. What the passage does teach about the rapture is amazing, however. In verse 15, it talks about the coming of the Lord. The word "coming here," it just sounds like a regular word, like I'm, I'm coming to the store or I'm coming to church. But this word is a technical word in Greek. It's a word that they use to describe the coming of an important uh, dignitary or official or uh, a king coming to visit a particular place. It was uh, a a word that expresses that, uh, that special sense. Those visits, whether it would be a king, whether it would be an emperor, whether it would be a dignitary those visits would be marked by fanfare. There would be celebration. Uh, There would be preparations. And there would be a a great uh, welcome when he came. Well, as Jesus descends from heaven as our king, verse 16 says that the dead in Christ will rise first. While their spirits had gone into the presence of God at their death, at Jesus' return, their bodies will be raised and transformed. So far from missing out, they're going to be at the front of the line as Jesus returns. After that is where that word rapture, uh, the Latin word rapture comes in. In verse 17, it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, will be yanked into the sky, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, we need also to stop and pause and say this word meet the lord or meet here is not just like if i'm going to if i'm going to meet you for coffee tomorrow this is not the word that i'm going to use. This meet the lord here the meet is a technical word that was used when an important dignitary or official was coming to visit a town there would be a delegation that was sent out from the town to go and welcome them to to welcome them and accompany them back into town. And, and so uh, this, this is uh, a, a picture, again, of this royal welcoming party, of people going out to celebrate the arrival of our returning king. All who have put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be caught up to be a part of this royal welcoming party, to, to, to welcome him and to celebrate him with with fanfare, with, there'll be angels, there will be, there will be trumpets, there will be loud celebration, and we will enjoy him. And verse 8, verse 17 ends by saying, and so we will always be with the Lord. He's not going anywhere. We're, we're not, we're not being kind of dropped off. Like, we will always be with the Lord. At that moment, there will no, no longer will be anything to separate us from his presence, separate us from his goodness and his promises. We will be with him, we will celebrate him, and we will enjoy him. Now, when Jesus described his return and likely referred to this rapture, he was careful to point out one thing. He was careful to point out that not everyone would be caught up to be part of the welcoming party. Not everyone was invited to be part of the reception. In Matthew 24, 40, he said, Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. The idea here is not that we won't all see him, because we will, But those who haven't trusted in Jesus as their king in this life won't be invited to welcome him as king when he returns. They will see him, and while those who have been waiting for him, who have trusted in him, who have rejoiced in him, they will go out and welcome him with joy and with a sense of satisfaction. Finally, he's here. And they will welcome him and return with him. But those who have rejected him in this this life, those who have resisted him in this life, they will see him coming, but they will see him not with anticipation and joy, but with fear and dread. Because for them, he comes in judgment. For them, he comes with not, not bringing salvation, but bringing his justice. And that justice will come. And and so as we come to an end of a passage like this, I I think each of us need to examine our hearts. We need to ask ourselves, are, are, are you like John Wells, trying to tack on a happy ending full of hope to a life that has really not laid hold of a hope? Are you like Larry King, clinging to every shred of hope to extend this life, but thinking too little about the faith in Jesus that's required to have hope in the life to come? Are you one of those Christians that Simon Critchley talked about, leading a desperate atheist life bounded by a desire for longevity and a terror of death? If you are, I want to invite you to come to Jesus today. I want you to come and admit that the things that you have been trusting in, the things that you have put your hope in, are not worth their trust. I I, I think that Larry King's wasting his money on his hum, the human growth hormones. I I think there's a better place to put his hope. But the reality is, that's not Larry King's problem. That's all of our problems. I think there are are things that we are trusting in that are not worthy of our trust. And if if you're feeling that this morning, if the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, admit that to him. Confess the ways that you have put your hope somewhere else. Purpose in your heart to to do that thing that the Bible calls repentance, to, to morally and spiritually do a 180 in your heart and mind. To say, this path that I've been going on, I'm going to come to the end of it and somebody's going to try and tack on a happy ending, but it's not, it's not real. Admit that to the Lord and purpose in your heart to turn in the other direction to walk in a path of real peace and real hope founded on the real certainty of the resurrection that Jesus showed us and proved to us when he said that he would come for us, that he would bring us back and that we would enjoy that same resurrection together one day with him. And as you do that, Remember that this hope that we have been talking about all morning is only possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This isn't isn't a free hope. He paid his his life for this. And so we don't earn it. We can't deserve it. But we also can't presume on it. We receive it by faith at Jesus' hands alone. And if you have that hope this morning, stir it up. Stir it up in your own heart. Stir it up in your conversations. Take this message and share it with one another. Share it with those who need this hope. Because he has given us something great, something precious, that we lay hold of for ourselves, but we share with others. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us understanding in all these things. We don't want to be uninformed. Help us to see where we're clinging to false hope. And help us to lay hold of the certain hope that is available in Jesus' resurrection alone. Stir up a hope within us that grips how we live. A hope that dispels fear. A hope that creates generosity. A hope that gives us love and compassion for others. And I pray for anyone here this morning still struggling to understand this hope. Or maybe struggling to find the courage to take that step of all-in faith in Jesus. Give them your help. Lead them forward. For we ask you in Jesus' name.